This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. All right, today's reading is from Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put his money out at interest, It does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I appreciated how uh, attentive everyone was, and you could hear it in the restroom, and then when Ryan said that take a moment to greet one another, it's like the volume level just increased. Everyone's like, oh, good. I'm released to to enjoy and fellowship with those around me. but it's cool to see how excited everybody is just to have conversation uh, and, in, and enjoy each other. Um, let's take a second and, and pray, and then uh, we'll jump into the psalm. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence. Thank you even as we pray this morning before the, before the service, you are an encouragement. You reveal yourself to us as we come before you and, and desire to, to see your glory, desire to expose our hearts, desire to, to lean into the beauty of your gospel, uh, and you're faithful, and you, you, uh, you show us who you are, and you change us by that, Lord. So I pray that this morning as we, as we look at kind of a, a tough psalm, uh, a psalm, if we take at its face value, kind of punches us in the gut. I pray that we would, um, at the end of the day, we would desire to see more of you. We desire to be drawn into your presence and to, and to rest in your glory and that, and that whatever feelings we come away with from Psalm 15, Lord, that those things would, would redirect us um, toward true beauty and joy are found. Uh, and you and you alone. So you help us with that this morning. In your name I pray, amen. Feeling cramped, I'm gonna move this. Um, I wanna start with my outline this morning because I feel like uh, as I was going through this passage, in my mind, sometimes uh, if I'm reading like Romans or something, you can just, it's sort of like just tracking with the argument. Sometimes it's figuring out the words. Uh, and you can just kind of see the flow of Scripture as you go through. Um, and some of the Psalms uh, are, are drawing in themes from a lot of different places in Scripture. Uh, so you're, you're connecting dots that may not just be there in five or six verses. And so I think as I was preparing for this week, uh, it was hard to like reel my own head in um, for all the sort of different rabbit trails that I was going down as I was going through this Psalm. And so I wanted to start with my outline to hopefully ground myself um, so I'm, I'm less all over the place as we, as we work through this psalm. Uh, and, I, and I think there's, uh, each one of these three things are sort of, in, are, are sort of 
I would say almost equally important to sort of grasping what's going on in Psalm 15. Uh, it, it, we, have a, we have a super important question, and we're going to spend some time talking about why this is like a really important question that the, the psalm starts with. Um, it may not be uh, as evident at first, but hopefully we can connect some dots and say, okay, this question that's, that's asked in verse 1, very important. We should, we, should, we should take this question to heart. We should be thinking about this question. We should be considering this question. And then we get an answer sort of throughout the rest of the psalm. And the answer is an impossible answer. I listened to a sermon from Paul David Tripp kind of on this, and he was just like, this psalm should crush you. And when I heard that, I was like, oh man, that's not that exciting to listen to the rest of the sermon. Um, but but it's, it's an impossible answer that we have, to, we have to not minimize or not ignore, but take it for what it's saying. Because if we understand the significance of the question, if we understand the impossibility of the answer that's given in the psalm, then that's really the only way we can understand the beauty of the gospel that's presented. It's we have to kind of hold all those things together or we're actually not going to be able to see the wonder and the beauty of who Christ is and what he's doing for us. So I wanted to start with the outline because it just, it just made me feel better to say, okay, important question, impossible answer, and beautiful gospel. So my, my attempt this morning is to kind of hold all those things together so that we can see more of the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus is and what he's doing for us. So let's just start with, the, with this important question in verse 1. He says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? This is David. At the, at the very beginning of the psalm, we get like a, a tiny little introduction. It says, a psalm of David. And that's the little all caps part that's like sort of right before verse one. That's, that's actually communicated to us in, uh, in the manuscripts that we have. This is, this is part of the inspired text. So we know that this is a psalm of David. And he's asking, who can sojourn in your tent? Who can dwell on your holy hill? And if, you've list, if you are somewhat familiar with what's happened to Israel before this and you, and you think back in their history, uh, there's probably something that's coming to mind when you think about the tent. And, and that's the tabernacle. There, there was this very, very important tent uh, in the history of the Israelites. This is a tent that was patterned after something that Moses saw in heaven and they created this tent, this tabernacle, and it had three kind of main uh, parts to it. You had, you had the outer court, you had the, the, holy, the holy place, and then you had the, the holy of holies that the, only the high priest could go in once a year. And this is the, this is the tabernacle. And later, we're, we're, if this is a Psalm of David, if you're familiar, the one who built the, uh, the temple after the tent was not David, but was his son. So we're kind of in this point, this sort of transitionary point in the history of Israel, where the tabernacle and the ark are still a significant way in which they fellowship and communicate with God. But as far as David is concerned, that's not good enough, and he has his heart set on building a temple. He has his heart set on building a temple, and God actually comes to him through the prophet and says, you know what? Uh, if I needed your help, I'd ask for it, is kind of how he approaches David. 
because I created everything. And a little, little humbling picture for David there. And he says, so therefore, I'm actually gonna, one of your sons will build the temple. You're not gonna get to build the temple. One of your sons will build the temple. And it's fascinating, even as you read the story, David must have been like obsessed with this. Because even before he dies, he's gathering all the material. He's putting together all the plans. He's like, you know, you're gonna build the temple, God said, but hey, this is how it's gonna look and this is how it's gonna work out. Um, So dad's sort of just like, like, he wants to build the temple. (laughs) He doesn't get to build the temple. So we're in this position where where we talk about the tent and we talk about the holy hill because the, the temple was sort of the highest place in Jerusalem where God's presence dwelled, and that temple was a pattern after the tabernacle. So when we talk about who shall sojourn in your tent, we're talking about who will be in your tabernacle, who will be in your temple, who will be in the holy place, God, where you are. And this, the significance of that grows as we understand how that connects to the Garden of Eden. And, and this, is, this is where I'm trying to like, I'm trying to filter down some of the connections here because um, there's some really interesting books on this and I'd love to talk about this if you're, if you're interested. But, but Adam and Eve were sort of the first priests of the first temple. They were, they were God created the world this, this outer court. Then he, he put a garden, the most holy of holy place, in Eden. He put the garden in Eden. So we have the holy place, the holy of holy place, where they walked with God in the garden. And then, then they have the rest of the world, sort of, sort of the outer court. We get the, the first little picture of what this temple is meant to look like. And, and what did Adam and Eve do in the garden? But, but had their presence with God. And when God says, work and keep the garden, it's the exact same Hebrew phrase that is told to the priest to serve and protect the temple. So God is actually using the exact same language when he's talking to Adam and Eve on, on how to work and keep the garden as he used with the priests when he says, serve and work in the temple. And so there's some parallel language there. And what's interesting is the way the temple and the tabernacle were set up, it was always facing east, which actually this is east. <laughs> Never works out that way. <laughs> the, the temple and the tabernacle were always facing east. So you had to approach it from the east. And if you know sort of your Bible story, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the Holy of Holies, they were cast out of the very presence of God, they were cast out east of Eden. So in order now for mankind to approach the very presence of God, they have to approach from the east, but guess what is in the way now in the garden? What does God put in the garden after he casts them out? It's a crazy story, a flaming sword. So they have to, something has to be cut and burned before mankind can then be in the very presence of God. And if we think about the temple, we think about the tabernacle, in the outer court is the altar. And what happens on the altar? A sacrifice is substituted. We don't kill individuals, but a, a sacrifice is substituted, is cut in very specific ways, is burned up on the altar. And now that this substitute is passed through the flaming sword, the priests can walk now back into the holy place. 
And once a year, they enter into the Holy of Holies. And do you know what's in that holy place? What's decorated on the walls, what's carved into everything on the, on the walls is part of our Bible reading plan that we're like, okay, come on, I get it. It's this and this and this and this. Fruitful trees. It's decorated like a garden and overlaid with gold. And it's, it's telling us the whole time, it's telling us, this isn't just about where can I dwell with God in his holy place. This is about how can we fix what was broken and, and how can we move back into the holy of holies so that we can walk with God, have fellowship with God, and enjoy him forever. Amen. David is giving us a super super important question. How can mankind be restored to its original intent to be in the very presence of God where there's fullness of joy, restoration, peace, and everything that God intended from the very beginning and everything that the tabernacle was pointing to and ultimately everything that Jesus is accomplishing as he is now in the heavenly places. He's not, he's not in the, the, the copy or the shadow that, was, that Moses was looking at and saying, well, I'm gonna make it like this. He's in the actual temple in the heavenly realm who is, who's, who's now seated at the right hand of God and has brought mankind for the first time back into the very presence of God so here's David asking this question. How do we get back there? How do we get back into the very presence of God where there's fullness of joy? He's asking that question, and I've kind of said this over and over again. Uh, Jesse mentioned it, but in Psalm 1611, he, he parallels this to life. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what, that's what David is asking. This is an important question. How can I get to the place where there's fullness of joy? How can I get to the place where there's eternal life forever? I like what he says in Psalm 27, verse four kind of narrows it down. He says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, one thing that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Amen. He doesn't want anything else. How can I get there? How can I get to the one thing I want is to gaze upon the beauty and the wonder and majesty of God himself. That's an important question. <laughs> we get wrapped up in lots of questions. Uh, it's hard not to think of the little guys. Uh, what time is their nap? When did they wake up? When do I need to put them back down to bed? That has to be coordinated ever so appropriately or everything just crumbles around. <laughs> important question. We get wrapped up in those questions. <laughs> What am I going to have for lunch today? What's my work week going to look like? What's my inbox going to be on Monday? Where am I going to go on a hike next? What am I going to do when I'm traveling plans? We get wrapped up in all these questions. We set goals that are good, and we think about all those things. We get wrapped up in all these questions. 
And those are good questions, but I think more often, we should be wrapped up in this question, how do I get into the presence of God? How can I be where there is fullness of joy? So David gives us kind of an impossible answer, which is why this psalm is really difficult. He goes down a list of saying the answer. How do I get to this place where there's fullness of joy? Verse two, he says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Okay, that's not so bad. I might be afraid to take the blamelessly a little bit too strict. But then he says, and speaks the truth in his heart. Speaks the truth in his heart. Uh, and this stings a little extra after coming off of the last Psalm, Psalm 14, we talked about what it means to, to have something in your heart. It's not, it's not that hard to look decent on the outside. Um, I, 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 uh, growing up in a private school, and then uh, Trevor's out of town, but he would understand because we went to the same private school. Uh, it was almost like you were trained where if you were like in an interview or meeting parents or on a date, you could just like turn on, okay, good kid time, you know, like just, which is not that hard. You were spent 12 years training to like act like a good person uh, and you can do it pretty well. <laughs> That's different than having something transformed in my heart. That's different than approaching a difficult situation and desiring to lean in and serve, like wanting to. That's different than smiling and nodding when someone says something annoying, while inside I'm just like, oh, seriously, or whatever. <laughs> Controlling what's going on in my heart so that my heart is blameless, that's ridiculous. That's impossible. But that's what it says. How do I get into the presence of God? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. How many things this morning could we, would we say are blameless in our heart? How many thoughts have we had that have veered from the glory and honor of God and the things that we do? What, how many things do we do today that we're motivated by making myself feel better and not giving myself for others? Are we blameless in that regard? That, that seems impossible. He goes on as if one verse wasn't enough. Verse three says, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor? nor takes up a reproach against his friend. He who does not slander with his tongue. It's hard not to think of James where he's like, if you've tamed the tongue, you've come a long way. <laughs> it's difficult. <laughs> Forget what's going on in our hearts, but some of the times the things that just come out of our mouth that's there, 
There's situations where we're just tired and we say things we regret. Or when I'm on my bike and a car almost hits me, I'm not proud of what comes out of my mouth sometimes and I have to repent of those things. Taming our tongue is difficult. It says, does no evil to his neighbor. Does no evil to his neighbor. And I feel like the, the rich young, or no, this would be the Pharisees asking, he says, well, what's the sum of the law? He says, love your neighbor. Okay, he maybe has this psalm in his mind, no evil to his neighbor. And what does he ask Jesus next? He's like, well, who's my neighbor then? Because <laughs> if I can pick the right people, I can be, I'm pretty good over here. And the, the point of the story is that even people that are your enemies, as they come into your, your sphere of influence and they're in need, that's your neighbor. Everybody's your neighbor. So how do we do no evil to our neighbor if that's like everybody we cross paths with? This is a, a very impossible question to us, very impossible answer to a super important question. Where do I get fullness of joy? Okay, no, speak truth only in your heart. Do no evil to your neighbor. And he goes on in verse four. It says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. A vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. I feel like you, reading that and taking that seriously at first, um, I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't really wanna despise people, in a sense. God, God calls me to love my neighbor. I, I, should take, I should take that seriously. And I think what the psalmist is saying is do we evaluate people and things the way God evaluates people and things? Do I, do, I look at, do I look at stuff and say, that's sinful, that's offensive to God, and is therefore offensive to me? That's righteous, that's, that's honoring to the Lord, that's, that's humble, that's, that's, uh, that's something that brings God more glory. And in my eyes, in my view of things, that's something that, that I should celebrate, something that I should rejoice in. It reminds me of what he says in, Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about love. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And I am stealing this a little bit right here from PDT because he's good at asking these like probing questions that make me really uncomfortable. He's like, think about the last month. How many things have you been entertained by that you wouldn't want to present in front of the presence of God? How many things have you considered and been attracted to and watched and listened that couldn't stand before God's holiness? that God would not be attracted to? Like how often do we approach things in the world that are maybe disguised in like a, I don't know, a catchy beat or a, 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 a encapsulating drama? And we maybe dwell on those things and consider those things and, and sort of take joy in those things. When if we were to view those things through, through the lens of, Corinthians, if we were, to, we were to consider our love and how we're supposed to love our neighbor, do we, do we rejoice in the things that are wrongdoing and, and take pleasure in that? Or do we rejoice in the truth? 
Do we, dis, do we uh, despise things that are vile and honor things who, that honor the Lord? I mean, this, the list of this just keeps getting more and more brutal. And at the end of that verse, he says, who kind of adds to it. He says, who swears to his own herd and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against his, the innocent. And I was thinking about that. It says, swears to his own hurt and does not change. Like he, he, this is someone who does, who speaks truth in their heart. That's how they enjoy the presence of God. This is someone who does no evil to any neighbor whatsoever. This is a person who views the world through God's lens. This is what I celebrate. This is what I enjoy because this is what God celebrates and what God enjoys. And this is what is vile. And now this is a person who, if they've committed to something and, it, and, and following through in that commitment causes them to suffer, they do that. That's rough. If, it's, it's so committed to righteousness, so committed to honoring what is right, that even if doing that comes to their own hurt, they still continue to lean into that. So what do we do with this impossible answer? I think there's a couple of ways we can weasel out of this a little bit. One way when God presents us with with what he requires, says, okay, well, how do I enjoy the presence of God? How do I, how do I, how am I restored into his very presence so there's fullness of joy, so that I can have peace, so I can have love for others, so I can, so that everything that is broken with the world can be right in the very presence of God. And he gives us his answer. He says, do all these things. I think one of the things we can do is minimize those things and just kind of compare ourselves to others. That's easy. That makes me feel better. Like even as we've gone through this list, I know because I did it, you were thinking of other people. And you were like, that person doesn't do that very well. But God's saying, no, 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 no. I'm not asking you to compare yourself to others. I'm asking you to compare yourself to, to, to me. I'm asking you to look at me and compare yourself to me. And that's painful. That's, that's, that cuts deep. I think another objection, maybe it's, maybe it's a little more thoughtful, is well, Aaron, you're like, Aaron, this is the Old Testament. This is why we focus on, this is why we don't go back the pages to the left of our Bible very often because things are just more difficult back here. <laughs> the New Testament is much, 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 much easier. And I, and, I, and I thought a couple of passages would maybe help us with that. Matthew 5, 48, this is Jesus saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is what Jesus says. Like, well, well, maybe he hasn't died on the cross yet. So... Matthew is still kind of before things totally switch over. So I thought we could look at Hebrews. It says, strive for peace with everyone 
and for the whole and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness or nobody will see the Lord. Ridiculous. This is the, this is an impossible answer. And maybe the most brutal one is from 1 Peter. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Amen. Yeah, ouch too. Be holy in all your conduct. So I said, when I started with the outline, I think each one of these three points are really helpful to sort of hold together. We can't minimize these things. It is an important question when we talk about who will dwell on your holy hill. He's asking, how is everything restored to where it should be, where there's fullness of joy, where there's fellowship with God? We're made in God's image. We image God so that we can have fellowship with him. This is, this is why you're different than the animals. The entire reason you're different is so that you can be in God's presence, enjoy him, worship him, and, and see his beauty and appreciate his glory in ways that your dog or your cat can't. Like, this is the intention of creation. It's a super important question. And the answer is impossible. Be holy. That's the answer. Every thought is pure in your heart. Every action is loving to everyone around you. Just do that. That's ridiculous. But that's the answer, and we, have to, we, have, we can't minimize that. We can't make that less than what he's saying. So then when we read the last verse of the psalm, we don't get a whole lot there. It says, he who does these things shall never be moved. That makes sense. If you can accomplish all of those things, then yeah, you probably have things a little bit figured out in life. You're not tossed to and fro. And I, I hope that as we kind of walk through this and we ask the question, okay, well, if this is what you need to be restored, who is he who does these things? Who is the person that does this? Who is the person that is so committed to doing what God has required of them that he was willing to suffer in order to accomplish that? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I didn't ask, but I appreciate that. Christ. <laughs> This is why we value the beauty of the gospel. This is, if we really see what we're missing out on and not being in God's presence, and we really take serious the answer to that question that we should be holy, then that should impress us with the beauty and wonder of the gospel. We should say, this is this ridiculous that Jesus could accomplish that. He could take on flesh, be weak, be hungry, be be tempted towards frustration with people around him who often weren't getting what he's saying. And in his heart, love others and consider people and do everything that this psalmist is demanding with perfection. And then die on the cross as a substitute for those of us who don't so that just like the priest, we could walk through the outer court into the Holy of Holies so that you and I could stand in the presence of God and enjoy him and, and be comforted by him. This is why I like what Jesus says in John 14, six. 
something we are familiar with. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way to what? He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Amen. That, this is what he's, his entire life is set out to accomplish. To bring us to the Father. To bring us from the east back to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. So then how do we make sense of the, the New Testament commands, the New Testament commands that we should be holy? Because it did say that. Be holy as, as you've been called, as your heavenly Father is holy. And I think there's two elements of the gospel. There's lots of them. But I want to focus on two that I think help us balance this tension where we... God is calling us to be holy. God's calling you to be holy. You to consider others and not yourself. You to live for others and not for yourself. You to, 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 to look at your neighbor and, and love them, even the ones that you just cross paths with and, the, and the, the ability that you can. So how do we balance these things? And I think the gospel tells us kind of two things. The, there's the promise of the gospel, but there's also the power of the gospel. There's a, there's a promise that, that Jesus has actually been our substitute. The, the past tense reality that we've been transferred from the, from the dominion of darkness, now over here to the kingdom of his beloved son. There, there's this promise that God is the one who acts to, to qualify us, because we are not qualified. The, the good news, the beautiful thing is that Jesus was our substitute. So he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. There's the promise of that. But I think a lot of times we sell short the power of the gospel. The gospel is capable of doing what is impossible in this psalm. God has actually given us the power. We had a whole sermon series on being taught by the Spirit. The third person of the Trinity dwells in us. The gospel is Jesus now sitting on the throne and the spirit is poured out, dwelling in us in a way that would have probably freaked out Isaiah because he just thought of the spirit and God over here in the temple, dwells inside of us so that we could actually be transformed. There's, there's actually real power there to produce real holiness in us. And we think about the power, we think about the promise. Those are two sort of helpful guardrails so we don't sort of fall off the ditch on either side. And what do I mean by that? I think a lot of times when we fail, a lot of times when we recognize that we were not loving. We were, the whole time we were listing all the bad things that were going on in Psalms or that we should do, we were thinking of someone else that does those things. When we fail, we forget the promise. We forget the reality that God is the one that's qualified us. Jesus is your substitute. We can, we can be we can be open to exposing even the, the most vile things that come out of our hearts. 
We can be comfortable with that because we can remember the gospel promise that Jesus is the one who is qualified. He's the one who enables us as children to go before God and, 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 and have the power to be transformed into someone who is holy. But then on the other side, we forget the power. We think that we are just destined to be the same. That it's impossible for us to, it's impossible for us to step into to serving in the children's room and have joy doing it. It's impossible for us to, to, to go towards our friend when they're being rude in a way that's genuinely compassionate. We think it's impossible for us to be stuck at a job that we don't really enjoy and honor the Lord there with joy, not buck up and smile. We think it's impossible for all of those things inside of us to change because we doubt the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we don't see that the, the gospel was not just to be a substitute. Yes, it was, it's really important, but also to transform us and to change us into his image. There's ridiculous power in the gospel as well. And we think about it through those lenses. I wanna look at a couple of passages, maybe just one, depending on how, how long. Um, I wanna read these passages and think through the, those two aspects. The gospel isn't just a promise that there's a substitute, it's, it's power. It's actual power to do what is seemingly impossible in the things that we read in the psalm. Look at Colossians, uh, we'll look at Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And he's talking to the Colossian church, Paul is, in verse 9 he says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. He's talking about how he's thankful that they've become part of the community He's thankful that they have been united to Christ and believe the gospel. He's like, okay, well, since we heard about that, we've been praying for you every day. And what does he pray for them? He says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he's, he's I want you to understand the gospel so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He's like, I've been, now that I know that you're, you've believed in the gospel, I'm praying that you will understand it even more so that you're completely changed in a way that you bear fruit and are fully pleasing to God. So you're not just saying the right things on the outside, but so that inside you have joy as you serve. So the inside you have peace as things are crumbling around you. I'm praying these things for you. In verse 11, he says, may you be strengthened with all power. Be strengthened with that power according to his glorious might. Why, is he, why are we strengthened with that power? He says right here, for, because, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. for all endurance and patience with joy. Joy. That's what that power is for. To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So he's talking about the power of the gospel and without even taking a breath, he goes on to say, oh, by the way, I wanna remind you of the promise. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's done it. 
He has done this thing. He has actually objectively transferred us from one place to the other into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom in his son we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. It's just another reminder of the promise. It's the, it's the power and the promise. Let's look at Romans. Romans 8. It's another verse where we can sort of see this back and forth between the power and the promise. These are, these are both true things about the gospel. And, and I've been trying to reiterate this, but I, I said that we're not gonna appreciate the beauty of the gospel and these two elements of the power and the promise unless we understand the question that he's asking. How are all the things restored? How do we enjoy our heavenly father? How do we get back into his presence in a way that, that was intended from the very beginning? Very important question. The answer is be holy. <laughs> that's impossible. It is impossible. But that's why Jesus rose from the dead. So that he pour out his spirit and give us the power to do those things. Verse one, Romans eight says, therefore, or there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Spends lots of chapters talking about the promise. Concludes, no condemnation. He's like, look, I know you're not holy. It's not a secret. <laughs> promise, though. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. No judgment from God. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. Free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So as we're united to Christ, that, that, that's that that exchange that has happened. He's become sin, we become righteousness. In Christ, there's been that exchange, that substitute that Jesus passed through the flaming sword. It is now in the Holy of Holies. In him, that substitution enables us to do that. Verse three says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law couldn't make us holy. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And I like what he says right here in verse four. Why did God do all of that? Verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law, all those hard things that we just read in Psalms might be fulfilled in us. That's why he did all of that. So that all those impossible things that we read about in the Psalms would be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And I like what he says in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who now dwells in you. He's like, you think that's impossible? Try raising yourself from the dead. Paul's just like, let me just break it down super straightforward for you. The Holy Spirit that raised Jesus out of the grave ascended to the throne. That thing that never happens, impossible thing, that's the spirit that's dwelling in you so that you could be transformed and you could actually fulfill the law and have heart change, genuine desires to love and serve and have peace as you enjoy the very presence of God. 
This is the beauty of the gospel. It promises us that Jesus is who qualified us. Amen. It promises us that we've been transferred. Darkness, kingdom of his beloved son. Past tense, that's already happened. Also, amen. This is wonderful. We should cling to that. But let's not forget the power that it gives us. When we're, when the, when we're exposed by the law and we're humbled and we're, and we're broken and we see what God is actually requiring of us, we should say, that is impossible. There's no way I can do that. And I say, yes, that is impossible, but so is raising from the dead. That's why we've been given the spirit. I like what Second Peter says. And I think I said I was gonna end with Romans, so one more. It's a good little summary of some of these things. Second Peter 2, 4, and 5. It says, as you come to him, as you come to the gospel, as you believe in the promise and the power of what Jesus is doing, he's a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. And if you think for a second that the gospel, that Jesus is chosen and precious, that's the spirit already at work in you, giving you eyes to see what honors the Lord and what the world rejects. He's already changing you. And now he talks about us. He says, you yourselves are like living stones and are being built up into a spiritual house. Jesus said, I am the true temple. Tear this down and I'll rebuild it in three days. The presence of God wasn't ultimately about a garden. The presence of God wasn't about a tent in the desert. It wasn't about a gold-plated, shiny temple in Jerusalem. The presence of God was about him taking on flesh and dwelling among us. He is the temple of God. He is God in the flesh dwelling with you and I, and we've been united to that. So now we're being built up as a spiritual house to dwell with God, to be a holy priesthood, and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now our lives, as we give ourselves for others, as we're empowered to, to walk through the outer courts and into the holy place, into where we can genuinely experience the wonder, the beauty, and the majesty of God, the sacrifices that we give as we love our neighbors, as we consider others more important than ourselves, you are actually able to do things that please your heavenly father. He's pleased by you. That's wonderful. You have a, you have a purpose in life to enjoy and to please the father in ways you could never do before. That's the beauty of the gospel. Both the promise and the power. And thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, a spirit that not just raised Jesus from the dead, but equips us to fulfill the impossible things in Psalm 15. So let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Man, there's so much there. 
We could spend eternity learning about you just from what you've spoken. Lord, I pray that as we go about our week, as we deal with the difficult things in our lives, as we rejoice in the, in the good gifts that come from you, the Father of lights, that we would, we would consider these things as instruments to draw us closer to you. Fullness of joy isn't found in, in the gifts. <laughs> They're a blessing. Fullness of joy is found in the giver. Help us believe the, the promise of the gospel when we're down. Help us believe the, the power of the spirit when we, when we don't see a way out or we don't see something that's possible. That's how he works. Help us believe these things, Lord, so that we could offer acceptable sacrifices and, and please you for what you've done for us. I thank you for this morning and I thank you for the opportunity to worship. In your name I pray, amen.